It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you grow your e-commerce business faster and more efficiently by cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and guidance from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello, Master Plan World. Welcome to our latest show. It is, as it always is, an absolute pleasure to have you listening, especially for this show because we've got something really exciting in it. Uh, I'm Chloe Thomas. I'm the creator of the e-commerce Master Plan. I'm an author, speaker and consultant focusing on e-commerce business strategy and marketing, essentially solving your e-commerce problems for you. Um, You can join the chat about this episode and anything else e-commerce in our Facebook group. It's called the e-commerce Master Plan World Facebook group. Uh, You can find it on Facebook or via ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook. I'm really excited to be bringing you something a bit different this episode. We have John Warlow on the show, author of both The Automatic Customer and Built to Sell. I found both books really useful and The Automatic Customer is often recommended by our guests, as of course you all know, not least because it's the key text on subscription businesses. I'm going to be discussing The Automatic Customer with John along with lots of other topics and I'm going to be including some questions from you, the listeners. So thanks to those of you who submitted questions in the Facebook group, ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook if you don't want to miss out next time. And I can't promise to use all your questions, but I will do my best to fit them in. Hi, John. Hey, Chloe. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm having a good day despite it's very wintry here in the in England today, but it, the day is going well despite that. Um, you probably can't trump Toronto, Canada for wintry. <laughs> Not by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> we don't even have snow. <laughs> um, so I've just given our, our listeners like the shortest explanation of who you are ever. Um, so could you please fill in the blanks a bit more about the day job, about what you do, the books, etc. Because that'd be awesome. Yeah, so I run a company called valuebuilder.com where we help entrepreneurs improve the value of their company. And uh, I came to that after having kind of been involved in four startups, um, which I exited uh, most recently, a more quantitative market research business that was acquired by a public company. I have made every mistake there is uh, in the book as it relates to building uh, companies to sell them. And so hopefully I tried to codify some of those in in the book Built to Sell, some of those lessons. And um I guess one of the uh, the reasons that I followed Built to Sell Up with the automatic customer was that of all the you know the factors that we see driving up the value of your company, recurring revenue is one that is actually um, often misunderstood by business owners. So, kind of wanted to to solve that by uh, by uh, by by re- researching that and, and publishing that book. So that was the the drive to get into the automatic customer. Then was literally yeah. it's just a challenge you were seeing a lot of people facing. Yeah. So, so with Value Builder, what we do is we have everybody start by completing a questionnaire and, and we basically score them on these eight factors that are important to acquirers that make your business more valuable. And there are things like growth potential of your company, your management structure and so forth. The one attribute that everybody was falling down on was recurring revenue. And, and so we kind of dug in on that and said, okay, why, why is that? And I think a lot of reasons people don't have recurring revenue is they say, well, that's just not the way our business works. Right. So they're a, Mm -hmm. they're a bricks and mortar uh, retailer, or they think of themselves as an e-commerce website and they, they don't necessarily think, um, that that's the way other companies in their industry work. And so we wanted to try to crack that and say, hey, no matter what industry you're in, you can create some recurring revenue and it'll drive up the value of your business. 
See, I find it, I find it really interesting the way the subscription piece has kind of changed the way people think about e-commerce within the industry over mm. the last few years. And I think your book's done, done quite a lot to help with that as well. So thank you. Because it's, it's got, uh, you know, there's like multiple different ways of doing subscription, which means that people are now seeing, oh, maybe I could do that. And like some of the biggest beauty retailers in Europe are now adding a, would you like to subscribe into what's been very much a traditional buy a purchase, you know, buy a, buy a product, get an email a month later telling you to buy it again. So it, it's, it's, I find it quite fascinating seeing the really largest players in the market now looking at it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's great. I think it's, it's the pioneering companies, Target, Amazon, and so, so forth are, are kind of cracking the seal and making company customers sort of familiar with the concept and, and comfortable with the idea of buying on subscription. On the other side, though, it means that every kind of mom and pop uh, e-commerce store or retailer is now in effect competing with the largest companies in the world. Um, so it, it, yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword in many ways. Oh yeah, endlessly. But you just got to find the right edge of the sword for you, haven't you? Mm. <laughs> Without taking the metaphor too far. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk kind of about subscription because I've seen the automatic customer. You've got lots of different subscription models in there, not all of which are hugely e-commerce, but two of which are, which is the consumables model and the surprise box model. Do you have any insights to share with the audience about which is better in which circumstances or kind of like some some must-knows before you headed down either route? Yeah, sure. So yeah, so first we'll define them. Consumables is basically replenishing anything that runs out where the act of replenishing it has there's no inherent enjoyment. So think of razor blades, right? Dollar Shave Club being a good example of that. Um, going to Walgreens or Boots in the UK and replenishing your your razor blades, it, there's no inherent benefit or enjoyment to doing that. It's just a task you've got to get rid of. And so what Dollar Shave Club did so well uh, acquired by Unilever a few months ago, uh, said, we're going to basically come to your house, drop them off, uh, send them to you in the post, essentially. And you can just take one thing off your your to-do list. And so that works really well where you've got a product or service that runs out that is a essentially a commoditized product. Um, Kleenex, uh, you mentioned women's uh, stockings or you know pantyhose mm-hmm. as they call them in the United States, uh, razor blades, anything that 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 you can replenish and that you use on a on a regular frequent ca- you know cadence is, is a good good example of a consumables market. Um, the surprise box arguably is is one of the most challenging subscription companies to get right um, because it is built and, and I think the ones that get it right are are focused in on an area where consumers have a deep passion for the area. So the surprise box to define it means that the consumer signs up for a um, a surprise box, usually a physical box full of um, uh, tricks and, and treats and toys that are relate to the theme that they care deeply about. Uh, so Birchbox is arguably the most uh, famous example of a surprise box model where women and more recently men get a surprise box full of cosmetic samples that they can try before they buy. And then they can go to the Birchbox site to, to buy those products. Um, other examples, there's a, a lover's... <laughs> 
if you can believe it, surprise wow. box. <laughs> that one hasn't made it to the UK yet, I don't think. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it was invented in the UK, knowing you guys. It was, <laughs> it was, you know, like different flavored condoms and different massage oils. Like you can imagine what mm-hmm. goes into a lover's box. And then it's, you know, you've got um, sports packs, right? Where you've got your endurance sports nut, where, where different sports gels and different sports uh, paraphernalia gets sent to you. So you can imagine for one of those boxes to make um, – to, to, to really work, you have to have this, this, this deep passion for the topic area. One of the, the kind of ones that, that I think is, is sort of emblematic of, of a successful example or, or one that at least is around a passion is BarkBox, right? So Matt Meeker uh, started BarkBox out of New York. It is a surprise box for dog parents. And he <laughs> distinguishes dog parents from dog owners because dog owners are less passionate about their dog than dog parents. Dog parents obviously treat their dog like children. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the people that are going to buy a surprise box um, for you know, dog treats. And so I think to make surprise box work, the, the examples where it doesn't work is you've got a, you know an area like chocolate lovers, where do people really feel that passionate about chocolate that they would, they would sign up for a monthly subscription of different chocolate? I guess some people do. I'd argue that market is probably pretty small. Um, so you have to find a market where there's just this really huge passion for that topic. I always think also that the uh, the, the surprise box side of things, it's, it's that challenge every month. You've got to come up with enough things to put in that box that meet your, you know, your cost targets, but also that at least, you know, 75% of them, I would guess, are of interest to the user. You know, if you got three birch boxes in a row where not one product suited you, you would quite quickly unsubscribe. So that retention piece must be very hard when it's about the surprise side of things, which is why I think the um, the bark box clearly is a bit of a genius idea because the dogs, I would have thought, are slightly less critical than humans. But not being a not being a puppy parent, I could be wrong on that one. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. Where you you're separating the consumer of the surprise box from the actual you know purchaser of it, and, and in fact, that's something to think about as well. Is is when you come to whether it's a consumable or a surprise box, it doesn't necessarily have to be the person who buys it. Doesn't actually have to be the consumer of it. So a good example of that is is uh, flower shipment. So H Bloom is a, a subscription based flower company. Well, a lot of people will buy flowers on a subscription. Um, in many cases, like for their mom, right? So if they've got an aging parent where their mom would really appreciate flowers being sent them on a regular cadence, um, they'll subscribe to H Bloom and send, uh, you know, 12, uh, you know, a bouquet of, of flowers to their mom once a month. And mom, you know, is surprised and delighted every month and thinks of their son or daughter, uh, you know, secretly the son or daughter has automated the process. So they're not actually thinking of them proactively <laughs> once a month. But, you know, gift subscriptions can be a, a, an interesting kind of model for some companies. Um, but you're right. If you fail to nail the curation process, which is the, in the surprise mm-hmm. box, the, the sort of secret sauce, um, that's, where, that's where you have a problem where people will subscribe for two or three months. The average tenure of a subscribe box subscriber, um, last time I checked, was less than 12 months. So, you know, the reason for that is, is, as you rightly described, after two or three months, they're not getting surprised or the things that are in the surprise box are not things they would use. And that's when they, then they churn out. So 
you know, it, it's easy to envision surprise box examples. It's a it's a much bigger task to figure out what changes with enough frequency that the sampling process is something people care about. Birchbox has done it because I guess women, you know, my wife is not a subscriber, but I could see her potentially subscribing because she likes to try different cosmetic products, right? And and doesn't want to go out and buy a $60 bottle of, uh, you know, um, hand cream without trying it first, right? Because it's expensive. So yeah, it is a very, very cheap way to get your beauty fix on a regular basis. Yeah, um, I think what's quite interesting is that quite a number and I failed to keep count but but a high percentage of the examples we've just been talking about are often a product that could be a consumable or could be a surprise box and it's the way people have chosen to position it that has turned it into one or the other like the flowers example in particular I thought that you know it could be that someone just wants a subscription of flowers to come into the house and there's many florists who actually have a subs- you know they, their business works on that model they supply the, the hotel with flowers all the time on the consumable side of things but then the the example you were giving was more of kind of a surprise box so I think I think that's quite interesting how the product could kind of fall in one of two cats one product could go both ways. It's kind of how you market it and position it that defines it as one or the other. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, again, some product categories are going to lend themselves to to others. I mean, you know, shaving is such a, such a force of habit that you're not going to want to try different razors every month. Like if you like the four blade razor from Dollar Shave Club, like you're, that, that's the razor you use. You don't want to be mixing that up all the time. It's 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 a precise thing. You get used to doing it. It's like you don't want to shave with the different utensils. Whereas, again, cosmetics is something you might want to continue to, to experiment with. So I, I think it, it's driven a little bit more by the product category. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, then I'm thinking about it. One of our very first podcast guests was a company called Wet Shave Club um, who sell who send men shaving and women now shaving uh, accessories. <laughs> so, um, and you know, and they're still going as, a, as quite a successful subscription company. So it seems you can find the right target market. Maybe you can twist anything in either direction. There you um, go. But um, I'm going to come on to a question from one of our listeners now, who's sure. Dave Rothero of Cheese Posties, who's been on the show a couple of times. Um, and he's got, it's kind of a consumable because you get a cheese posty, you get a cheese toasty through the post every week. But it's also a um, a surprise because there's so many different flavour options so he kind forgive of me, forgive me chloe i don't yeah. know what a cheese toasty is oh um it would be a grilled cheese sandwich okay got it got it a little lost in translation moment there. <laughs> that's okay <laughs> i'm glad glad you pointed that out because otherwise you know um many of our american listeners as well as our canadian listeners might be going what are they talking about yeah. uh so um and it's a mouth-watering selection, which I believe is currently still only available in the UK for anyone wanting to go and check it out. But um, Dave asks that subscription commerce marketing has got to address many more trust objections from the customer than if you're just going for that one-off purchase, because there's the automatic payment piece and you're signing up to potentially an endless scenario. What do you believe? And, and, you know, this is obviously something which the, you know, the B2B business, the non-e-commerce business has to deal with on any subscription model, really, is that ongoing commitment. So is there a particularly powerful mechanism that you've come across that addresses those trust and those trust issues and lowers that barriers to conversion? Yeah, I think Dave, you've hit on the nail on the head for sure. Um, 
there's a couple of elements to it. There's not only trust that, you know, this cheese toasty company is legitimate and they're not going to steal my credit card information or they're going to allow me to cancel when I want to cancel. There's, there's all those kind of worries that people have. There's mm-hmm. also something called subscription fatigue, which is setting in increasingly as we get our credit card statements and, and more of our, what we buy now is on subscription, whether it's, you know, Netflix, um, uh, dollar shave club instead of, you know, going to the pharmacy once a month, we're, we're seeing these sort of 10 mm-hmm. and 20 and $30 a month charges. So now our, 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 our credit card statements are, you know, going to two, three, four pages long and, and they're becoming a big nut at the end of the month. And so people, people's, um, threshold to subscribe is growing. It, it, it's harder to get them to describe than it would have been say two or three years ago. Um, because of this thing called subscription fatigue. So I think you're absolutely right. You've got to overcome that. I, I talk about 10x versus 10%. And what I mean by that, Dave, is 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 you you know, you've got to somehow try to figure out how the, the the value proposition to subscribing is literally like 10 times more valuable than buying it on a one-off basis. And if you can't do that, you might want to rethink the subscription model altogether. So, for example, Netflix, um, I would make a case that for – in the United States, I think I pay uh, – Seven and ninety nine a month for Netflix. Uh, you know, I could make a strong case that that it's actually worth more, like seventy bucks a month, given all the content that that I can consume, that my kids can consume, et cetera, on Netflix. Um, that's a ten x value proposition over over what the the kind of standard model was. Uh, um, I, I, I'm struggling with a cheese toasty subscription to get to ten x, and and so that would be a concern for me. I, I'd want to find a way to make it so much more valuable to subscribe. I think if you're if you're just saving ten percent to subscribe, I don't, I don't think it's got it's got legs. I think you've got to somehow figure out a way to. To, maybe it's perceived value, but there is got to be some value that that is that is you know dramatically more than you would have if you just bought it on a one-off basis. As it relates to giving people confidence in subscribing, you know I think that's where you, you might need to lean on the credibility that someone else already has. So you know could it be? Jamie Oliver's cheese toasties and you do a licensing tie up with Jamie Oliver so that he provides his credibility or could it be Sainsbury's uh, cheese toasty selection or some other sort of up and coming chef, maybe obviously not as, as well known as Jamie Oliver, but some up and coming mm. you know, person that would credentialize it for you and and give it some third party endorsement cuz you're right I, you know in and of itself I, I'm thinking like are, are the are the conditions in the kitchen clean? Some guy in the back of his truck is bringing me a toasted <laughs> sandwich. Like, how does that work? Is it going to be like, am I going to be poisoned from there? Like, I've got a lot of questions about cheese toasties on subscription. So, you know, those are a couple of thoughts uh, on that one. And presumably that third party endorsement, once you're up and running, as long as you've got customer testimonials, they'll do a similar job for you. Yeah, I think people are getting a bit, a bit, um, skeptical of customer testimonials. I think anybody can get five or six nice friends to, to sort of say <laughs> nice things. I think, you know, Joe Malone, cheese toasties feels a lot 
you know, like having some, some, some third party credibility that we already trust feels like it's going to be a much more compelling value proposition. Uh, the other piece of it is maybe changing who you're selling to. So we're, right now, I'm assuming you're selling cheese toasties to consumers. The other option is to think of it as a B2B play and go to uh, small takeaway restaurants that, that want to have some, some different things, some different selections for them that maybe don't have a kitchen or don't have the ability to kind of experiment, et cetera. So selling a subscription of say, okay, we'll supply you every day, every day by 11 a.m. 20 cheese toasties that you can, you can resell basically in your restaurant, in your high street takeout store. Um, that's rephrasing it or reframing it from a business to consumer model to a business to business model, um, which might have more legs. Wow. Well, Dave, I hope you got a few bits and bobs from that. Um, I, I'm certainly envisaging you scribbling about that last one, if nothing else. Uh, okay. I've got another um, listener question for you now, which is actually from Christine Nicholson, who runs Divine Legs, which is the tights business we mentioned briefly in the intro. And this one, it's kind of, it's a bit broader. It's a bit outside the subscription world, but it's... Um, what and this probably comes very much from the value builder side of things what's the biggest single factor that you see makes people's businesses successful or is that just too broad a question well in, in a, no i think it's a great question i mean i think generally it's recurring revenue um all eight factors we we measure a value builder we measure eight factors right so as as i mentioned earlier it's it's things like growth potential financial performance of your company cash flow how well differentiated your product or service is and and i and i argue the two most important factors in other words, the factors that are weighted the heaviest in our algorithm mm -hmm. are recurring revenue and what we call monopoly control, which means how well differentiated your product or service is in the marketplace. Um, those that score really well on, on monopoly control have a very unique product. Those that score very poorly are distributing somebody else's product. Um, those businesses trade at a very low multiple, those that are distributing other people's products, whereas ones that are that have a unique product they control, the brand they control, et cetera, are, are scoring much high, more highly. Uh, recurring revenue is equally important. Uh, obviously, the buyer is going to want to know once Christine retires or sells her business, um, how's this revenue going to continue? And so they're going to look at the recurring revenue. And I guess underneath the recurring revenue sort of leg of the stool, the, the most important key performance indicator obviously is going to be your churn rate. Uh, your churn rate is going to inform your growth rate. It's going to, uh, it's going to be everything really in, in a subscription model. So, so, you know, obsessing over your churn rate, I think is, is, is the, the key performance metric there. Cool. John, could you just describe what churn rate is for those who are currently going, what's churn rate? Uh, oh, no, I have no me. idea yeah, what yeah. churn rate is. So if you could just yeah. ex explain that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, it's just the, the rate at which people cancel your subscription. And, um, and and it's usually expressed as a percentage. And you can have revenue churn rate or customer churn rate. So revenue churn rate is you you enter a month uh, with, let's say, uh, $10,000 of, of recurring revenue. And let's say you lost, because people canceled, $1,000 of recurring revenue. Your revenue churn rate for that month would be 10%. It's 1000 of 10000 that you had coming into the month. Um, so that would be a 10% recurring uh, revenue churn rate for the month, which would be 
very bad. Um, that would be your revenue churn rate. Your customer churn rate is the same basic formula, but based on customers. So if you have 100 customers at the beginning of the month, uh, you have you 10 cancel, you've got a customer churn rate of 10% a month. So what sort of number should people be, um, what should be people be feeling as reasonable or a good target? Depends dramatically on the kind of business. So, um, and, and I don't mean to be, uh, dodge the question, but it really does depend on what business and what industry you're in, what model you're using. Um, and, and arguably the more important number than, than your churn rate, churn rate will define this number. Why, by the way, but, but what investors look at is your LTV to CAC ratio, which stands for your lifetime value to customer acquisition costs. And, and what an investor is looking for, what a professional buyer, someone who wants to buy your business, for example, or a portion of your business, they're looking for an LTV to CAC ratio of at least three to one, meaning you're going to capture at least three times as much revenue, uh, profit contribution as, as, um, as it costs you to win that customer. So if you, if it costs you a hundred dollars to win a customer, your lifetime value should be at least $300. If you're, if you're looking to, to raise money for your business or sell it, um, your lifetime value of a subscriber is informed by your churn rate is, is driven by your churn rate. The, the way you calculate lifetime value is you take your monthly recurring revenue, you multiply it by a margin, you divide it by your churn rate. Again, this is a bit of uh, a bit too much math for a podcast, but it's Essentially, cool. yeah, your your LTV to CAC ratio is going to be your most important metric. So, for example, um, you can get away with a reasonably high churn rate if it's really inexpensive for you to win customers, um, because ultimately you'll find fa- you'll find that your CAC, uh, your customer acquisition costs, are relatively low. Therefore, you can you can get to that three to one ratio. If you're uh, so, for example, Ancestry.com, the guys who help you make your family tree, has a three point four percent. Last time I checked, um, monthly churn rate, which sounds astronomical. It would be 40% a year, but they've got a really efficient way to acquire customers very inexpensively. I think their, their cost to acquire customers like less than $100. So their LTV to CAC ratio is actually almost up, up around six to one. Wow. And it because their acquisition costs are so low. If you take a business-to-business software platform, um, Salesforce.com as an example, to get someone to change their CRM platform is huge. It takes like a very expensive salesperson months, if not years, to convince a company to switch to Salesforce.com, meaning their customer acquisition costs m- might be hundreds of thousands of dollars in the large enterprise space, maybe even millions. But the lifetime value is equally high. And so they can afford it. So, so there's no one churn rate that, that is good or bad. In the case of Ancestry, it's very high. In the case of Salesforce.com, it's very low. What is more important is your LTV to CAC ratio. What a fantastic explanation. And for those of you who are struggling to follow the numbers, I'll make sure we put all of that in the show notes. But um, that those are invaluable numbers. So if you didn't 100% get them, then do go to the show notes and have a look because they are they are crucial whether you're looking to sell or just looking to build and keep. Um, you really need to understand those numbers. Okay. Um, I have one very quick question for you, John, on one other piece of jargon, uh, not jargon, um, industry wording that you used earlier. If you could give me give us a really quick explanation of what a multiplier is. Yeah. Please. So when you sell 
yeah, when you sell your business, you will sell it for a multiple typically of either your revenue or earnings. And so a subscription company, a successful subscription company growing at 25 or 50% a year, you know, might be trading these days at say four times top line revenue. Meaning if you have 3 million in top line revenue, it would be roughly worth around $12 million. Uh, that's a, that's a multiple. And in the subscription world, unlike the offline world or the, or the bricks and mortar world where multiples are multiples of profit typically in the subscription world, they're often multiples of revenue. So subscription businesses in general are valued at a much higher rate than, than traditional businesses because of the recurring revenue. Superb. Thank you. And again, I'll make sure there's details of that in the show notes for those of you who are, uh, who are struggling slightly to get through them. Okay. So, um, so let's, let's leave, leave, um, leave the, the money and the stats breakdowns and let's get into the top tips round. And I love this section because it gives me and our listeners some really quick ideas for taking our businesses to the next level. So John, first up, your book top tip. If everyone listening to this podcast agrees to take Friday off and read a book to make their business better, which book would you recommend? Go buy Small Giants by Bo Burlingham. Talks about the importance of culture and you know, your vision of your company, and that not necessarily big doesn't necessarily mean good. Excellent. That's not one I've come across, so we'll be we'll definitely be diving into that one. Uh, the traffic top tip: Which marketing method do you either prize above all others, or think doesn't get the press it deserves? Well, I can tell you my podcast actually drives most of our traffic for Value Builder. So I think podcasting is a good traffic builder. And what's your podcast called? It's called Built to Sell Radio. Built to Sell Radio. So if you want to hear more about that, guys, go and have a, have a listen. Um, the tool top tip then, maybe a collaboration tool, a social media plugin, a phone app, or just a way of working. Is there a cool little tool you use that makes you and your team more efficient from day to day? It's an oldie but a goodie. I'm an Evernote guy, so I like the fact that it syncs across all my devices. If I'm sitting, you know, in front of the fire, I've got a, a comment that I want to add to a note. Um, if I've got my iPad handy, it's great, and it uploads and syncs with my desktop. So I'm a big Evernote guy. And the startup top tip: If you met someone this weekend who's thinking of starting an e-commerce business, what would be your first tip for them? Go sell. Stop writing a business plan. Uh, the more time you waste on your business plan, it's basically a fiction. It's a house of cards. It's worth nothing <laughs> until you actually go sell something. Matt Meeker, when he went to build BarkBox, actually took a Stripe-enabled uh, phone and said, would you subscribe? And if you say yes, they actually, he actually took a credit card when he was interviewing dog owners at a dog park. Uh, it is one thing to tell your friends, yes, your business is wonderful. Everyone will tell you your business is wonderful. It's until you get someone to actually take out their credit card, do you know that you have an idea that with legs? And so go sell it before you work on a business plan. Another piece of fantastic advice. Well, Master Plan World, you can find the top tips and links to everything else we've been chatting about in today's episode, together with those descriptions and sums, by heading over to ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast, where you'll see a link to this show. Now, John, before we say goodbye, could you please let the listeners know they, where they can find you and your business activities on the web and social media, please? Valuebuilder.com. Wow, as simple as that. <laughs> so that that's gonna be an easy one for me to add. <laughs> nice easy one for me to add into the show notes there. Not too much typing involved. Right, well I'll add, add that link and everything else we talked about in the show notes. Again, you can find those at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash podcast or just head to the website, click on the podcast tab, or use the search box. John, thank you so much for being on the e-commerce master plan podcast today and for sharing so much of your experience with us. It's been it's been a real pleasure. 
My pleasure, Colin. Well, everyone, wasn't it great to have uh, to have John on the show today? So many kind of tips and ideas. And I have to say, I'd not heard the phrase LTV to CAC before, but I will be using and thinking about that metric a lot because it's such a key way of, well, essentially, if you've not got a lifetime value that's higher than your cost, cost of customer acquired, then uh, then you don't have a business, really, because you're not making any profit. So that's one for all of us to, to be calculating and to be thinking about as the, as the weeks and months roll by, whether we're looking to sell or whether we're looking just simply to build our profits. And lots of interesting tips, ideas and discussion there around starting off that subscription business. So I hope that's been useful. As one of our listeners and subscribers, if you're enjoying the show, please do share it with your e-commerce business marketing friends. Uh, It would be great to see some more reviews on iTunes as well, because they always help. So pretty, please. Uh, Now make sure you come back next week to hear me. Yes, it's going to be episode 100 next time. And uh, I'm going to be answering your questions. So it's a jam-packed show full of all kinds of different bits and pieces. So uh, please come back to listen to that next time for episode 100. In the meantime, though, have a great week and keep optimizing. Thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast. Find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com.